This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Art, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Tanya Tular, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Erin Shea about her new book, Mongol Court Dress, Identity Formation and Global Exchange. Erin Shea, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Erin, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Uh, sure. Um, so I am an assistant professor of art history at Grinnell College in Iowa. And uh, because I teach at a liberal arts school, I'm able to teach a wide variety of topics. So I was trained as a Chinese art historian, but I teach about China and Central Asia and even a little bit into the Middle East. Um And my research uh, is similarly broad. Um, I'm obviously very interested in textiles. That's the the medium that I focused on for my dissertation work and for this book. Uh, But I'm sort of interested in the connections between China and and the rest of Asia, sort of the broader world in what we call in China the middle period, so sort of 10th to 14th centuries. And what led you to the research of Mongol dress and identity building? Well, I was always interested in sort of cultural exchange. Uh, when I started my graduate work at the University of Pennsylvania, I thought I would actually be studying the Tang Dynasty, so that's a little bit earlier. Um, That's 7th to early 10th centuries, because that's well known as a very cosmopolitan period. Um, But then my first year, I took a class with my advisor, Nancy Steinhardt, about the Mongol period. And I just realized there was so much information that existed and hadn't really been fully explored, especially from the Chinese angle. Um, And I've, I've also always been interested in textiles, but it occurred to me that when you're studying nomadic peoples, especially, I mean, and anyone, but especially nomadic peoples, um, textiles are extremely important, wearable wealth. Um, And so I set off to learn more about how to analyze textiles. And uh, that's, I sort of went from there. So I guess the beginning of graduate school, I was already oriented that way. Right. So where can we look for the origins of Mongol court address? The 
origins as I see it. So the Mongols were, um, they were confederate, they were sort of a disparate group of people confederated in 1206 by Chinggis Khan. Um, so uh, sort of groups living in what is present day Mongolia. Um, and so they obviously were, were living and had their own sort of uh, artistic products and uh, rituals that they were engaging with in the, in the pre-imperial period. But um, what I see as the origins for sort of the court dress system starts with the formation of the empire. So it starts with Chinggis Khan and the sort of rapid expansion of the Mongol empire across Asia and uh, the borrowing, they sort of borrowed from different groups that they encountered as they went. And um, I think for me, I see, especially in, in China with the Yuan dynasty, which was founded by, by Chinggis's grandson, Kublai, um, I see the Khitan and the Jurchen who were groups that ruled over large parts of North China prior to the Mongol period um, as a key inspiration for the Mongols. They looked at these groups, um, which were semi-nomadic, and how they were able to engage with the cultures of of China and other sedentary civilizations um, and use sort of pre-existing um, pre-existing motifs, pre-existing, uh, I guess, uh, art forms and bring them into their own sort of culturally significant activities, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So what kind of material are we talking about? Is that uh, silks or is it something else as well that they've been using? Yeah, so in the pre-imperial period, um, the Mongols were not using a lot of silk. Silk was made in the south, so in southern China. That's where silk was cultivated and um, had to be imported to northern groups. Um, But very soon after the foundation of the Mongol Empire, we know that there were populations of weavers um, weaving silks for the Mongols um, in different places in Central Asia, in, in present-day China. Um, and so, yeah, the they were using, they were, when I talk about Mongol court dress, uh, I'm talking about basically uh, luxury silks, and especially silks woven with gold, which um, are referred to in the period as nasij, which is from the Arabic word. It's a probably refers to a compound weave um, with an overall feeling of gold, but what in Western text is sometimes called cloth of gold, which is very unspecific, but uh, probably a lampus weave, um, silk with gold thread. And where were these textiles uh, produced? Would the court have its own textile production, but this was also a movable court, as I understand. So, um, or would that be centralized somewhere or were there several centers of the textile production? How does that look like in the early period? 
Um, beginning in the 1220s, there were centers for weavers established that made materials for the court. So although the court was moving and there were you know, multiple and by court, there wasn't a centralized court per se in the early period, especially, but sort of um, the the horde, um, the encampment would it would have been moving around. But it's pretty clear from beginning in the 1220s that uh, weaving centers were established because looms are harder to, large looms are harder to move around. And so the, the Mongols seem to have established sedentary centers for the production of luxury materials. And by the foundation of the Yuan dynasty in China, um, under Kublai, you have three specific centers of weavers um, who are, they're, it's staffed by basically uh, Chinese and Central Asian weavers. And there are three centers that specialized in the weaving of gold woven textiles for the court. So there was, yes, there was centralized production and, and they, they didn't move, um, although the court did. So you said very luxury material, silks, and it needs to be imported. But what other materials were they using for um, for their um, robes? So what would the more general public be uh, clad in, if, uh, if not silks? Yeah, uh, probably more practical materials like uh, wool and felt. Um, certainly felt was really, really important to the Mongols um, and to other nomadic groups. Um, you know, felt, they were clothed in felt, but their their tents were made of felt. The mats they sat on were made of felt. Um, felt is sort of the nomadic material par excellence because it's, um, you, you can make it well on the move. Um, and it's water repellent and uh, it's, good for cold weather. Um, so certainly felt, uh, and it also seems like there was probably, um, woven wool as well. There's some evidence for that, but we don't have as much as we do, uh, for the silk material. So even though people were probably not wearing silk in the quotidian context, that is what has been preserved, um, in treasuries and in tombs and things like that. So it, it gives us a funny, uh, sort of unbalanced sense of of what people were actually wearing. Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to ask if we have anything of that preserved at all, because a lot of this material would disintegrate through centuries. Obviously, organic materials are prone to um, or reused or just um, not preserved very well. Yeah, it's uh, it's a shame that I don't think that there's very much wool material preserved from the imperial period. I know that there was a somewhat recent excavation of a cave burial in Mongolia that has um, some wool textiles, women's uh, robes um, made of woven wool uh, that date from a couple centuries before the Imperial Mongol period, so I think about 10th century. Um, so we know that these existed, but unfortunately, 
they were not, I guess they were not prized enough um, to be preserved in, in sort of a funerary context. So your chapter two then discusses um, this that we've already touched upon, a robing of uh, Kublai's court. Um, could you tell us about your investigation of social and ceremonial functions um, that the dress at Kublai, uh, Kublai's court had? Yeah. Um, so this is something actually that is really special with the Mongol period um, in China that the Mongols came in and instead of adapting Chinese court ritual to their their own purposes, they sort of imposed their their own ceremonies on this larger court. Um, so that is in stark contrast with any groups that came before. Um, and something really important for the Mongols was a uh, hierarchical robing. Um, so the gift of a suit of clothing, clothing articles, but a suit of clothing in particular from the Khan to his officials was like a contractual thing, right? It's like gifting, um, unequal gift exchange, right? He gives them these articles and in exchange he gets their loyalty, their fealty. Um, and so in the Yuan period and in, and even before the Yuan period in the Imperial at the beginning of, you know, starting in even the 1240s, um, we have records of this, this robing and this gift exchange started happening on a larger and larger scale. And so the Khan would gift, thousands of his officials, thousands of his men, um, suits of clothing, and then they would all wear these suits of clothing to special ceremonies, um, which in the Chinese historical material is, is referred to as the Jisun ceremony, the Jisun ceremony, um, which refers to the suit of clothing. And they would all wear clothing of a one color. And so one day it might be red and the next day it might be gold. Um, and these robing events, these robing banquets uh, took place whenever it was a special celebration. Um, so the Khan's birthday or New Year's or the beginning of the spring hunt or the fall hunt, anything sort of majorly significant. And so you would have um all the Khan's officials, all wearing the same color clothing, all wearing gifts from the Khan. And this is why it was so important to have these weaving centers, because if you're making so much clothing for the court, you have to have, I mean, they're producing it on an incredible scale. Um, And so it was important to have several centers that were dedicated just to the production of these these robes. So if we would find ourselves transported back in time, attending something like that, a very special event, uh, would we be able to distinguish who is who among these this people at the court? Would the court dress be specific to certain positions within the court or um, so different colors? Or you kind of say everybody was wearing the same color, but were there any signs or iconographical motifs or something that would distinguish them? 
Um, not at the beginning, not during Kublai's reign, um, not at the beginning of the, the this period, From especially for us as outsiders. Um, it, this is something that is in contrast to other uh, court dress systems, um, including the Chinese court dress system. In China, before the Mongol period and the Song Dynasty and earlier as well, um, officials, there, so there were nine official ranks, um, and officials would be assigned colors based on their rank. This was not the case in the Mongol period. Um, people were not distinguished by the color of their clothing. They would all wear the same color clothing. However, by 1314, so a little bit middle middle Yuan dynasty, uh, you get the first sumptuary regulations. And these are not based on color and they're not based on insignia or, you know, anything like that. They're based on uh, material. So if you were an official of a certain rank, and, and at this time, by that time, 1314, the, the Yuan had a, a, a fully adapted the Chinese bureaucratic structure of the the nine, well, it's really 18 ranks, nine different ranks with divided by two. Um, so like upper and lower first rank, upper and lower second rank, etc. cetera. Um, so depending on your official rank, you could use certain materials. So um, such as like gold thread or stamped gold or certain jewels. Um, so I think, but it was still all relatively luxurious when you read these regulations. So I think that it would have been difficult, especially for an outsider to necessarily discern the rank of different officials based on what they were wearing because of, you know, everyone might be wearing the same color, but maybe someone has nicer pearls or jade or rubies. Um, but it's, it's, a, I think it was a bit more subtle than it had been, um, in the China, certainly at the Chinese court. Um, and I, and I, I will say that, um, something we think about, maybe when you think about Chinese official dress, if you don't know anything about Chinese official dress, you think about rank badges, right? The Mandarin square, um, which was, the you know signified rank in the Ming and Qing dynasties after the Mongol period, uh, and these rank badges actually originated in the Mongol period, uh, but they didn't signify rank in the Mongol period. They are adapted to signify rank later. So, uh, yeah, it's not it's not a hierarchical system in the in the in the way that uh, the Chinese bureaucratic system was sort of inherently hierarchical. Mm-hmm. Well, that's really interesting. I found that part of, of that chapter really interesting to read because you go more in details about these badges and uh, the cloud colors um, and details uh, of certain robes, specifically the robes with underarm uh, openings. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? What kind of a shape it is? Um, did this opened um, underarmed uh, garments had special function? I mean, it was really interesting to to delve into that topic. Yeah, it's um, they're a little bit mysterious. So we know that a lot of the court robes worn by both it seems both men and women, but we we especially have evidence for men um, had these underarm openings, and you can see them in paintings because you can see the 
the robe underneath, right? Different color. Um, some people have speculated that it allows the wearer to slip their arm through the underarm opening and create a short sleeve version of the robe. So that that could be, um, or, you know, air circulation. But uh, I think that it ties, so it might be functional, maybe, Um but I think it ties, the form of it ties to a sort of larger and older um, Eurasian style robe. Um, so we have examples from centuries before. I'm thinking of uh, robes found in Antonopolis in, in Egypt. Um, that have these underarm openings and extremely long, thin sleeves. So actually the sleeves in that case wouldn't have been worn and they, the wearer would have just slipped their arm through the underarm opening. Um, and so it, it seems like these underarm opening robes probably, I think, connect to... Um, uh, this sort of special type of robe that existed in in different parts of Asia, um, and I guess you know into into North Africa um, in the centuries before. And we have, uh, if you look at the Ilkhanid manuscripts, so the the Mongol court in West Asia. If we look at the paintings of courtly figures in the Mongol style. Um, many of them are wearing robes with the sleeves sort of dangling to the side. And so I think that, um, and it, and, and others have written about this as maybe a, it's like a signifies kingship. Um, they're far too widespread in the Yuan to signify kingship. So I think maybe they have different significances in different parts of the Mongol Empire, but I think they do tie into this older um, older style of robe with the, the dangling sleeve. Although, you know, in the Yuan, we see that they're wearing the sleeves as well, right? Yeah, definitely really um, interesting um, um, element. Um, so you already mentioned a little bit, but would you mind elaborating um, on your discussion how these visual depictions of Kublai Khan um, developed beyond Chinese references? What kind of visual material is out there that can tell us or informs us um, about this? Um so, well, Kublai is only depicted in the Chinese context in uh, two paintings that I know of, right? There's one that's attributed to the Nepalese court artist Aniga, which is probably a, which is his portrait, which is probably a, um, intended as a memorial portrait, an ancestor portrait eventually. Um, and then there's another of Kublai Khan hunting, famous painting, um, attributed to Liu Guandao, showing Kublai, um, with his favorite wife, Chabi, by his side, um, out hunting. It's a, it's a weird painting because it's, you know, clearly not a realistic style hunt, but it's, uh, it's showing kind of Kublai at the center of his, um, of, of this like world empire in, in some ways. Uh, so in the Chinese context, you have only these two paintings, um, 
but and they're very different and they show different types of dress and they're showing kind of different uh, aspects of Kublai's rule, both as a Chinese emperor, I would say, and as the Mongol Khan. Um, And then outside of the Yuan context in uh, the major pictorial tradition of the Mongol Empire is, of course, in the Ilkhanate. And um, they are the artists working at the court in the Ilkhanate who are making these um, manuscript paintings are, you know, just as just as in the Yuan, we have like a combination of chi- certain Chinese uh, painting traditions with uh, the aims new aims of the Mongol Empire. So too, um, in the Ilkhanate, you have a combination of older uh, indigenous painting traditions from West Asia uh, with this Mongol Mongol subject and Mongol flair. Um, so I think I think for like represent pictorial representations, it it really, you know, there aren't as many as one would hope. I wish the corpus was bigger. But I think that when you look at the images, you see sort of this uh, bringing together of different cultural elements um, and in, in media that was not traditionally something that the Mongols um, had engaged with. So, and of course, the people who are painting these are not Mongols, right? They're, they're employed by the Mongols, right? Yeah. Yeah, very important distinction, I guess. Um, I especially enjoyed um, in this visual representation as well to look at the images where they have this really strange, should I say that, very large hats depicted. Um, you you have a very interesting discussion on the hats, but also on the belts. Uh, Would you be able to tell us a little bit more about that? Um, did they have a special function? How were they wearing those la- large hats? And of course, we'll, we'll um, talk about the chavi and, and the female garments um, uh, shortly. But um, yeah, I just got extremely interested in, in this uh, hats because um, just imagining wearing that would be extremely uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> Are, you're talking about the bokta, the women's, the married woman's the crown. Yeah, um, people love the bokta. I get definitely every time I talk about Mongol dress, I get the most questions about the bokta. I think they're really striking. So they're these, they're the crown of um, married Mongol women, and they are a couple of feet tall. Um, and they are made of a birch bark structure they're hollow and then covered in cloth so they may have been covered in wool or felt earlier um, just as clothing the same as the clothing would have probably been wool or felt um, in the quotidian context and in the pre-imperial context but those that have been preserved and those that are depicted are um, made of silk right so covered in silk uh, either gold woven Lampus, Nasij, or um, all the depictions are of red silk boktas. Um, and they, the, the crown itself was uh, 
put on the head through a like a sort of hood with a hole at the top of it. So then it, and it would be attached under, but with the strap under the chin. So it was pretty secure. So I don't know if it would have been too uncomfortable because I don't think it was, they weren't very heavy. Um, but I do imagine that it was a little bit awkward to have this two foot protuberance um, on your head. So this is definitely part of court dress. And it's something I argue for in the book. Mongol women were extremely active. They were able equestrians. They were the ones who ran the home camp. They basically did all of the, the, the child rearing and the herding and all the, 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 the major functions of daily life. And I imagine that doing all of this whilst wearing a book on your head would have been pretty annoying. And so although we have a lot of descriptions of Mongol women wearing these, I do wonder, I, I, I assume that they were worn for special occasions. So like court ceremonies and, um, Maybe if visitors came, you know, they were part of formal dress, but I don't think that women were wearing them in a daily context. Um, I will say, too, that not only is it, you know, it's very striking and everyone sort of visitors to the Mongol court all write detailed descriptions of them. And, and we also have evidence for them pictorially and archaeologically. Um, and and there's something that really identify Mongol women immediately, right? You see an image with this tall bokta and it's just immediately you can identify it as a Mongol woman. Um, and, and I'll say that also they were excavated, you know, several boktas have been excavated actually in Siberia and Western Siberia and in the Volga um, river basin. So in the area of the golden horde. So this was something that was worn it seems across the empire, right? We have images from the Ilkhanate, we have images and excavated material from the Yuan, we have excavated material from the Golden Horde. So um, it was clearly, you know, quite special uh, and quite widespread. So I don't know that they were wearing them all the time, but they certainly were wearing them frequently and it was an important symbol of, of Mongol identity. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. Will you dedicate a special chapter to to Chabi, to Kublai's most influential wife? Um, obviously, she would be wearing this bokta, as you say. But is there anything else that would distinguish her from other women at the, at the court? Um, again, in in a dress um, or in designs, something that we could visually uh, understand that that she is Chabi. Um, I think probably she was wearing more jewels <laughs> um, than other women. When we look at uh, the only images that we have of, sort of mass assemblies of Mongol women in the courtly setting are from 
uh, Ilkhanid manuscripts. So if we want to extrapolate that, if we're, if we're making we're, we're making an assumption that the court at the Ilkhanid is the Mongol court, the Ilkhanid is looking like the Mongol court at the Yuan. Um, but in the Ilkhanid material, we see that the Mongol women are all dressed in red robes, red bokta. They all they they're all wearing basically the same thing. But I would I would say that when we look at the the portrait, of course, just like Kublai, um, Chabi's image in China only exists in the t- the same two locations as as Kublai's. So her memorial portrait, and then in Kublai Khan Hunting by Liu Guandao, and in her memorial portrait, it's uh, we see that her bokta and um, and her her ears and her neck. She's just totally dripping with pearls, basically, um, big pearls, and and also something called maybe hyacinth stone, which is not a ruby, but it's a big red stone. So she's wearing a lot of very valuable stones, and so I I would think that just like the Khan, the Khatun. Um, basically she's wearing this very similar style dress as the rest of her court, but just a nicer version of it, more elaborate, nicer materials, more jewels. So you've already mentioned um, some of the textiles where they are preserved. Um, my question is, is there an object, is there a textile fragment or a, a piece of garment that you find particularly interesting? Hmm. Well, that's a good question. Um, I'm thinking my like Rolodex of Mongol textiles in my head. <laughs> Sorry. Um, no, no, it's fine. No, I, I mean, there's so many that I, I, I love this material. It's one of the reasons why I study it is because I think it's so interesting and there's, it's, um, very diverse, even though I keep saying it's all silk and gold. It's there's lots of different patterns drawing from all over Asia. Um, I would say I I really I'm trying to think of one in particular that I that I really like. Um, Maybe the Bokta in the China National Silk Museum in Hangzhou, um, which they've lovingly restored. Um, so it's made of nasij, it's made of gold woven lampus, and it has um, it has some pearls on it as well. So some of the ornament has been preserved. And it's just it's it's a beautiful object. Um, it's been well restored um and yeah and i i illustrated in my book and i and i like it because uh it's it shows sort of the it's it's a it's big you know and you can see when you see it in person you see how big it is um I guess the other, another object would be the robe on the cover of my book, <laughs> which is a, a bian xian or braided waist robe that has a decoration in um, woven decorations in gold on the on the shoulders, and I like that robe because. It isn't the flashiest robe um, preserved from the Mongol period, but it shows uh, 
I think it's it's sort of the typical male Mongol robe with this braided waist, and it has some gold decoration. And I think it shows that, you know, it, they weren't all necessarily covered in gold, but often gold was incorporated uh, as a design element even in in robes like like this one, which is which is made of silk, it's a nice robe, but it's not the nicest robe. So I think it's it's nice because it's sort of a, a middle of the road court robe, and I like that about it. Um, how big are these uh, garments? I'm always uh, this question comes because I'm always fascinated to see um, medieval, for instance, medieval Western European um, courtly dresses. And it shows that people were really tiny. They were like one meter and a half or something like that. And those those dresses would not be something you and I could actually try on because they're, they, were, they were so much smaller. Um, how big are these garments? Um, they are also not huge. Uh, <laughs> they're not, I know someone asked me, they were like, can you ever try on these? <laughs> and I said, no, <laughs> that's not how, that's not how we treat historical garments, but also I wouldn't fit. Um, so they are, there's a lot, you know, what I would say is there's a lot of, often a lot of material. So especially in like the skirt. So when they're displayed, if they're not displayed on a mannequin, if they're displayed flat, we see that they're made of a lot of material. So the Mongol women's robes, especially, they're very, very big. They're very wide. Um, but I would say they're, they're pretty short. Like if you actually stand up to it, yeah. Like you're saying, you know, people were probably more like a meter and a half tall, not, not two meters. Um, but they're made of a a lot of material, a lot more material than, um, than, than we use in our clothing today. And so for the Mongol women's robes, especially they, trailed behind them when they walked and they the sleeves would bunch up um around the wrists and they were they're very voluminous so i think that something that's striking actually about um mongol court dress when you see it in person is that it doesn't seem small (laughs) like medieval european dress can sometimes seem quite petite i think because of the quantity of textiles that were used and again that's because it's luxurious to use so much you know it's a, so much fine material it's a symbol of a symbol of power right power. yeah fascinating so one of the main themes of of your book is that the mongol period across asia saw this introduction of something like international mongol visual style and it spread literally across asia relatively quickly within, you say, within a generation. Um, What would you think, why was such a success for this and how it was achieved beyond the, obviously, expansion of the empire? Yeah, it's a good question because, I mean, it's astonishing. You see, within a generation, really, um, material that is being produced in both present-day Beijing, which was called Dadu at the time, um, and Tabriz, so almost 6,000 kilometers apart. And, you know, the the buktas are similar. The court robes are similar if we're talking about women's dress. Um, it, when, when people talk about the Mongol Empire, they often 
talk about these courts as having kind of like interchangeably, which I think is we, we shouldn't do. We should talk about them individually, but it's because it's so striking. The similarities are very striking. Um, and I think it's because the Mongols, they their dress was very recognizable and it was recognizable as, as powerful. They were the powerful group. Um, they did not, I mean, it's a huge contrast in China, especially in, in, in previous sort of non Chinese groups that had taken over large parts of China. So like the Liao and the Jin, they adapted a lot of Chinese, uh, customs to their own uses, including dress. So they used Chinese court dress and used Chinese court ceremonies to sort of uh, show their own power. They kind of usurped it, right? Um, so the Mongols didn't even, didn't really do, I mean, they they allegedly did do some, some Chinese rituals, but that wasn't like the important, that wasn't their way of showing power, right? Their way of showing power was sort of imposing their own their own visual culture in these different places. And I think people understood it as like powerful um, and, and, and uh, I mean, it was very, very effective. I mean, I think in part, like it's goes back to the Bokta again, it's so recognizable. You see it and you immediately know that it's a Mongol court lady. Um, And so I think like it's, it's, well, the Bokta certainly is unique. I don't like using the word unique very often, but I think the Bokta is, is sort of unique to the Mongols. Uh, it's a unique uh, visual symbol that is instantly recognizable and then easily adopted, I would say. Yeah. So your last, um, last chapter deals then with trade in luxury textiles for and to European and Mediterranean markets. Um why were these textiles so popular in Europe? Um, well, I think it, I think it goes back to the centuries before, just as with many other things, right? So I think that the the desire for Eastern style textiles certainly we can trace back to the Crusades and um, this idea. I'm not a European historian, but I've others have argued, and I think pretty convincingly that there's an, a, a connection between Eastern objects, Eastern textiles, and like the Holy Land, um, which is maybe one of the reasons why Mongol textiles and other Eastern textiles before the Mongol period show up so often as uh, ecclesiastical vestments. Right, this is one of the major sources for Mongol textiles um, is European church treasuries, and so I think that there was a connection um, in their Latin imaginary with sort of the Holy Land. Um, but I think also Mongol textiles are luxurious they're covered in gold they're beautiful they have all sorts of they bring together all sorts of imagery from across asia and um and i think that i think to a certain extent the latin west was aware of the mongols and i mean certainly because they they made it all the way to hungary in the 1240s um but as the 13th century went on it, the Mongol, the the idea of the Mongols changed from this terrifying specter to 
oh, potentially an ally against the Muslims. Um, you know, they're they're not they don't have religion, so maybe we can convert them to Christianity and they can um, be our ally against right the Muslims. Um, I think. And, and, and they have really nice things, right? They have these really nice textiles. So I think it was this idea of maybe not power in the same way that Mongol textiles conveyed power across the Mongol Empire, areas that were ruled by the Mongols, but certainly this idea of luxury and a certain amount of, of power um, that was appealing I mean, also, they're just intrinsically valuable and, and beautiful. So I think there's that, too. Okay, um, I'm Tanya Tuller, and I'm talking to Erin Shea about her book, Mongol Court Dress, Identity Formation and Global Exchange. If I may, at the, at the end, uh, just tie into, um, obviously, the ropes, um, the Mongol Uh, textiles in Europe, in European courts, as well as markets, uh, they have a specific term for them. So they they were recognizable, just like it seems like everything with Mongols was recognizable. Uh, They're called Pani Tartarici. Um, But at the end of your book, you also touch upon something that I find very important, um, and that's this othering of the Mongols. So obviously the material culture that is precious by itself, the way it is produced, the way it contains the golden uh, weaved into the fabric, but also the depictions of the Mongols within European uh, culture. Specifically, I think you refer to Italian masters and the um, fresco paintings. Uh, Would you uh, tell us a little bit more about that? Uh, Yeah. So figures that I think we can identify pretty reliably as Mongol, um, or at least as how the Mongols might be imagined uh, by these northern Italian painters uh, show up in early Renaissance paintings. And often they are taking part in, you know, torturing a a saint or... martyring someone um they i'm there's there's one fresco that has sort of a figure dressed as a mongol han and what do i mean by that i mean they often wear sort of pointed hats which are associated with the mongols they are often clad in gold woven textiles with the repeat patterns that are sort of characteristic of mongol textiles um repeats of of floral patterns or of of fantastic animals. Um, They often have the type of braids or facial hair that we um, associate with Mongols. Um, So that's what I mean by identifiably Mongol figures. So I'm thinking of one um, fresco in a monastery outside of Rome and the it's a figure he's dressed like a mongol khan and he is he has the cloth of christ and it's like the roman soldiers are arguing over it and it's like he is in the center of it and so i think that um it's interesting the way that the mongols are depicted in these various paintings because they're not necessary i mean they're not good they're not necessarily the worst. They're often sort of taking part in something as one of one of many characters, right? So the Roman soldiers are 
um, are, are arguing over Christ's cloak um, and the Mongol Khan is in the middle of it, or different figures are, are torturing St. Peter and a Mongol figure is looking on, you know? So I think that uh, it's, it's sort of a, they're, they're sort of a figure of maybe luxury and opulence. Often they're, you know, the way that they're depicted, but also something to be feared um, or not trusted a- anyway. Well, Erin, uh, thank you so much for this um, wonderful look into uh, Mongol textile culture and building of their identity. Um, just before we finish, uh, what are you currently working on? Are you still uh, focusing your research on the Mongols or is there something else in your cards? Um, I'm, I'm working on a couple of projects, but uh, definitely several of them tie into the Mongol material. Uh, I am increasingly interested in the material coming out of the area of the Golden Horde, so present day uh, Russia and Ukraine and um, Kazakhstan, to name a few of the countries <laughs> that uh, covered the Golden Horde. Um, the there's a lot of archaeological material there and so I'm interested in looking at that in in the broader context of the Mongol Empire but also sort of differentiating like what made these courts in the Mongol Empire different from each other um, how was visual culture uh, being used differently at each place or because they as I said before they aren't they aren't interchangeable although we we often, use this material interchangeably, which, yeah, I I would like to, I guess I'm interested in looking more at like the local context of this larger empire. So that's something I have a sort of larger project going on that will be looking more into Golden Horde material. Um, I'm also uh, looking into um, the actual materials a little bit more. So I've been investigating uh, the production of gold thread. I recently wrote an article about gold thread in the Mongol period, and I'm hoping to to look into the impact on a specific type of gold thread that was proliferated during the Mongol period and its impact on um, sort of the luxury textiles of of Europe because the type of gold thread that was made that was preferred in the Mongol period was very different from the gold threads that had been used previous to that period. So I'm, I'm looking more into detail on that. And then um, I have another project that is looking more into like kind of the Mongol legacy in the Ming so, yes, all connected to the Mongol Empire, but sort of taking the material from the book and and delving in deeper and trying to be more specific. Because although my argument in the book is that you have this, you know, larger, recognizable pan-Asian Mongol culture, I think it's really, really important to look at the Mongols on their own terms. And, and part of that is looking at the Mongol empire in very specific places and how these, these phenomena were expressed, you know, not just on a really large scale, but also um, more locally. So I guess it's like the global and the local. (laughs) 
Fantastic. I'm already looking forward to that. Uh, so more to the Mongols in the future. Thank you very much, Irene, for your time and uh, for sharing your knowledge with us. Thank you. Thank you.